Hello, my name is Adrian Goldberg and welcome to Byline Radio, or if you're listening on Catch Up, the Byline Times podcast. This time, the Amber Heard-Johnny Depp libel trial. The bare facts of these. Actress Heard wrote an article for the Washington Post in 2018 describing herself as a victim of domestic abuse. Although Depp wasn't named in the article, he claimed it damaged his career and sued for defamation. This week, he was awarded $15 million in damages by a jury, although this is capped at $10 million by the laws in Virginia where the case took place. Heard was awarded $2 million after bringing a countersuit against Depp's lawyer. But the overall conclusion is that she lost and he won. Depp said that the verdict had given him his life back. But Heard said that she was disappointed, not just for herself, but because of what the verdict means for other women. She said it sets back the idea that violence against women is to be taken seriously. The judgment was all the more remarkable because in 2020, Depp fought and lost a case against The Sun in the UK after the newspaper called him a wife-beater. We'll hear shortly from Hera Hussain. Hera is from Chain, an international organisation based in the UK that fights against gender-based violence. And Sean Norris, the Byline Times Chief Social Affairs and European Reporter. Before we do that, though, just a reminder... Byline Radio and the Byline Times podcast are supported by subscriptions to the Byline Times, our wonderful monthly newspaper edited by our colleague Hardeep Matharu. We report without fear or favour. You'll get more information at bylinetimes.com. That's bylinetimes.com. Hera, welcome to Byline Radio. We know what the seven-person jury made of the libel trial. What's your verdict? I'm really uh, disappointed in the verdict because um, not just in the verdict, but also in the way that is being received. Um, I've been, you know, going on about it the whole day, but you know, I feel like the the, the very basic facts of how this case has unfolded um, are being missed, and also what the verdict means itself. Um, this was, like you said, um, a defamation suit. It wasn't about domestic abuse. It wasn't to prove that. It was about whether, you know, what she said was defamatory and, and you know, that's what the jury found. It's interesting that the verdict, I think the, the most damning part of the verdict is that it uh, accuses her of malice, which means that, you know, she intentionally, um, you know, lied or acted in a deceptive manner. To, to destroy his reputation. And I think that's where a lot of the um, anger from activists and survivors is coming from, including myself, that um, it, it sets a really bad precedent at a time where um, there's a lot of backlash against the Me Too movement, um, in the, not just in the entertainment industry, but everywhere. And, um, and then also in the way that it's being reported, you know, like you set up a really great explanation, uh, but most... Uh, outlets and also uh, people are seeing the verdict as that, you know, he won this case, he didn't abuse her, and this vindicates him, completely forgetting the UK 2020 trial, which was had, which, you know, resulted in a 129-page judgment in which he was found guilty on 14 incidents of domestic abuse. So I just, yeah, I think this is, this is a big red flag for me as an activist, as a woman, uh, as someone who supports survivors every single day of the the state of dialogue that we have around intimate partner violence. And there was something of the 
football match or the tennis match about the way in which allegations were batted backwards and forwards going from, as it were, one end of the pitch to the other and relayed sometimes with glee on social media. And, of course, social media is its own entity, but there was something about the way in which many people engaged with this ultimately pretty serious trial, serious issues at stake about matters that are very concerning that that, that turned it almost into a sport. Yeah, it, it was a... Spect- we were all spectators. And in fact, it was live streamed. Um, it was sliced up into different memes and mocked. And people were analysing every single thing. I think that it's it's really indicative of the the kind of again the sort of sort of the the level at which we are having conversation on intimate partner violence. I don't think that courts are the best places to talk about the nuances of gender based violence, even though you know in in many cases they have to be, and that's where we go to get legal forms of justice. But it's just you know for an average person to think that just by hyper analyzing like the 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 tweaking of someone's eyebrows and that there's a whole q and on conspiracy about what clothes amber heard was wearing and how she was trying to intimidate giant Depp by mimicking his style things like that um or people thinking that they know what true tears look like uh you know decades of research in psychology and criminology has told us that there's actually no good way of knowing these things but everybody's so confident because they feel like they were there because they've seen everything. Um, so it was a lot. I just I just think that we just most people don't understand a how difficult and complicated uh, gender based violence is and domestic abuse is. Even if you believe in mutual abuse, um, you know, there are still factors to consider here um, around who they both are and what points of their lives they were in. And even if you believe both of them were abusive, the way people are taking it is that he's not abusive. This case proves he's not abusive. Well, that's not true because in the UK, he was found to be. Um, and you can't just discard that evidence. So, um, yeah, I think the the back and forth, it, it's, it's an age-old tale. You know, every single case I've ever looked at of domestic abuse or sexual violence literally comes down to he said and she said. And in this case, we actually had lots of gory evidence as well to look through which is why people are now making all these conclusions but instead of focusing on the the merit of each of the evidence and how it plays out and and the power dynamics what's happening is people are catching the most salacious details and then forming their opinions based on that and how likable they found um, amber heard or how sympathetic they felt to our joint app yeah sean i know before you came on, you were keen that we should reference back the defamation trial relating to the son. I think I'm right in saying that allegations were made of 14 instances of abuse in that trial. And the judge said that he was inclined to believe at least 12 of those 14 instances that Amber Heard presented to the court. Yes, absolutely. So in 2020, um, there was a libel case in the UK. um, And the way it works is very different in the UK. The libel case wasn't heard in front of a jury like it was in the US. It was heard in front of uh, a judge. And it was the judge that makes the decision as to whether the son had libeled Johnny Depp. So what had happened was um, Dan Wooten, who was at the time a son columnist, had referred to Depp as a wife beater. And Johnny Depp had sued for libel. 
and it was a very kind of similar situation you know Depp and Heard both going and giving evidence a lot of media circus around it but of course in the UK we don't have televised courtrooms so there wasn't that same kind of clipping of moments of the court case and then circulating them around social media so there was still that little bit of distance that we haven't had in this US case and yes as you say when you look at the 129 page judgment the judge did find that um, of the 14 allegations of abuse that he believed that 12 had taken place and then I can kind of read you some of the things that he said. So he said, I accept her evidence of the nature of the assaults he committed against her. They must have been terrifying. I accept that Mr. Depp put her in fear of her life. And I accept that Miss Heard was assaulted by Mr. Depp, as she and the defendants have alleged in Incident 10. I accept that she feared for her life. And that these assaults would, particularly in combination, have been extremely frightening. And again, he says, I accept that they put Miss Heard in fear of her life. And some of the evidence presented in that 2020 libel case are so so horrible i mean you know it's clear that there's been a, like a lot of nastiness on both sides but the way that depp talks about her is very very misogynistic and of course there's that very famous um tweet uh, text exchange between him and a friend where he talks about wanting to you know I, I can't use the word on the radio, but mm. to sort of um, violate her corpse. I mean, it's it's really misogynistic stuff, and I, I think like that's what's really distressing. Like whatever, whatever people's views on this case, we know what the verdict was in the UK, and we know what the verdict was in the US. But ultimately, these are like two people who have been put, who are going through this media circus, and the language that has been used to talk about Amber Heard. Is, has been really, really misogynistic, both from members of the public and in the press. And as I say, in these text messages between her ex-husband and his friend. And I think that's what's been quite alarming, this kind of very public misogyny and monstering of women. Yeah, going back to that uh, son libel case, so one paragraph from the judges summing up Justice Nickel, in which he said, a recurring theme in Mr. Depp's evidence was that Miss Heard had constructed a hoax and that she had done this as an insurance policy and the actress was a gold digger. And he said that he didn't accept that characterisation of her. An almost identical attack was used against Amber Heard in this case, but perhaps because it was heard in front of a jury, perhaps ordinary people are more impressionable than a judge, this time it worked. Um, I think the the jury versus judge is a really interesting aspect, and it's something that a lot of people have been bringing up with me because I've been talking about it on Twitter, and they've been saying, like, just talking about the merits. And actually, this is something that I hear from uh, lawyers all the time when we're talking about low conviction rates for rape in the UK. And when you ask uh, prosecutors why that is, often, like, more often, like most of the time, they will tell me that it's because of juries and that, you know, juries can be more biased. They have less training around, uh, you know, sort of untangling rape culture from their understanding. And they are more likely, you know, assuaded by sort of victim blaming. So that argument comes up, uh, that sort of explanation comes up a lot in, in the UK when I talk about why our conviction rate remains one of the lowest in the world. Um yeah, just, that was uh, something that came to my mind. 
I totally agree. I think what we have to understand around juries when it comes to issues of gender-based violence is that we all live in a culture where um, there are so many myths about victims of gender-based violence. So if you think about issues around rape and sexual assault, we still live in a culture where there's a, a lot of victim blaming that goes on. The idea, oh, she was drunk, or she was wearing a short skirt, oh, she'd kissed a guy, you know, all of these things that we're very familiar with. And of course, juries go into the room and they have these you know, we, we can't escape the culture that we live in. We can't escape the fact that there are sort of very damaging messages about um, victims of gender-based violence, particularly women victims in that respect. And obviously, you know, judges in libel cases are very, very highly trained um, to sort of recognise these kind of, sort of sort of tactics of um, undermining the victim or of um, what they call DAVO, which is... Um, deny, attack and reverse victim and offender. And I, I've been reading this article on the BBC website where somebody called um, Mr. Stevens, sorry, Mark Stevens, who's an international media lawyer, um, he was discussing the case and he says that, you know, he didn't believe that um, the judge in the UK accepted the sort of Darvo um, method, that they could sort of see through it. But it's always very effective on juries and that juries are often very susceptible to these kind of tactics. And so we do... It, we, it, it does make sense that a jury that is living in a society that has very negative attitudes towards victims of gender-based violence would, would perhaps have a different outcome than a judge who's been trained to sort of spot these tactics and to challenge these kind of myths about perfect victims. Yeah, I think that idea of a perfect victim is really interesting, Sean. The, the sense that, and Hera touched on it earlier, uh, you know, people talking about whether Amber Heard's tears were real, this sense that we have of victims behaving in a particular way that conforms to our idea of what a victim should look like and sound like. In this case, it seems clear to me that Amber Heard did not always act as well as she might have done. You know, there were a couple who obviously had troubles between them and individually had troubles. Yeah. But those instances were then used to undermine and discredit the much bigger argument around domestic violence of which she was a victim. Absolutely. I mean, so this idea of the perfect victim is is one that's very troubling. And we see it in all different kinds of contexts when it comes to gender-based violence, from the fact that, you know, only certain cases get a lot of media coverage. Um, you know, if a woman is attacked or is murdered or disappears, you know, we might we might see some um, reports about that. But most most of the cases don't get reported. And and I think what we saw with the, this case is, yes, you're completely right. Um, her kind of bad behaviour, shall we say, or or um, things that were perhaps quite unpleasant or unkind or, or nastiness was used to really undermine her. And it was like, well, she can't be a victim because she's behaved like X, Y and Z. And look how she's behaving now. She can't, you know, that's not how a real victim behaves. I mean, number one, there is no kind of real, you know, everybody reacts to trauma, everybody reacts to being victimised in a huge amount of different ways. And there's no sort of one way of being a victim. But I also was really struck by the double standard in this. Because, you know, if Johnny Depp, if you believe that this was a case of mutual abuse, as many people do, or even that there is not mutual and that Johnny Depp was the, the victim of domestic abuse, and many people believe that, um, you know, he, he, he's also not a perfect victim. In fact, his behaviour is also really troubling and he has behaved in quite unpleasant ways. And I mentioned the really misogynistic language that was employed earlier. So, you know, 
her kind of bad behavior or perceived bad behavior or her not being this kind of perfect victim, this model of what we think a victim should look like was used to discredit her. But him not being the perfect victim and him not behaving in a kind of the model way of being a victim was used to almost bolster his case and to win him sympathy and to make him more credible. And I just found that was a very odd double standard throughout the whole case. You know, whatever happened, you know, whatever happens in relationships, they're complicated. These are clearly two very people that have gone through a lot and have, you know, some of the evidence is very, very upsetting and awful. And you think this is a very troubled relationship. But the different treatment that she received to what he received is, is very clearly a kind of gendered double standard. You referenced Me Too at the start of this conversation, Harry. Just yeah. explain why you think that is important in this context. I think it's really important because, you know, as, as, a, as someone who runs an organisation, a global organisation on fighting gender-based violence, I have been noticing this like subcurrent of anticipation of something like this to come up so that people who have been feeling on the defensive, mostly men, let's let's be clear, there's mostly men in, in powerful positions, um, have been waiting for something like this to be like, see, see women also lie. See, we can be victims too. You know, the Me Too movement has not been about saying men cannot be victims. Like, you know, further from that, even my own organization, you know, is is built around women and non-binary people, but we, you know, all of our stuff is open to people of any gender, men, you know, including. So it's this this idea of turning this into a moment for men to um I think this is a really, really this is this really is a tipping point. And I think that we it shows us that we are so far, so far from having a culture where we support uh, survivors who make the very difficult decision to come forward, thinking about defamation and libel cases, you know, the cost of going through something like this can go into like the tens of thousands of pounds for ordinary people. For celebrities, obviously, it's going to be a lot more because there's a lot more at stake. But, you know, why would someone come forward against someone who has, uh, you know, uh, access to financial capital or is, is in a powerful position uh, when they know that they can just slap them with the defamation and it's already being used this is the thing this is a silencing tool and so many survivors that i know are afraid of going to the police because if you go to the police then there's going to be some there's going to be you know like a uh, a paper trail um and if it goes to court then you you can be countersued like there's just so many layers and i think that you know sean makes such a great point about this like i just i you know it's just beautifully put about how this double standard was applied around what a perfect victim looks and like and acts like and how it was applied in this case because you know when he says he's going to do the most horrible things to her to her body um that's just taken as like something a victim says uh, whereas when she is violent or abusive towards him or belittles him which there is evidence of so there's no point in denying that there's it's just there is um then that's taken as her being violent and her be having borderline personality disorder and her being generally unstable, which also reeks of like a very gendered analysis around mental health and also especially BPD, which uh, women get overdiagnosed with. Um, and there's like a whole uh, area in psychology and looking at why women are, who specifically women who experience uh, long-term abuse, uh, often get diagnosed with BPD. So that's a whole other thing. But yeah, I just think that, you know, 
who wants to go through this? Like, why would someone want to come forward? I'm already getting so many messages from survivors saying that, you know, I feel like my abuser is laughing at me. Every time I see these memes, I get panic attacks. I'm sitting on the floor crying. Um, what should I do? What is the point? So, you know, this is things that people are saying and sharing and believing. It is having an impact on other people who... Yeah, Hera, I'm not decrying that testimony at all. What's kind of interesting and perhaps slightly disturbing, I think, is that many of the people criticising Amber Heard, many of the people defending Johnny Depp are women. On Twitter, on our Twitter stream, at Byline Radio, Alison Bushell has said that this conversation is simply not worth a listen. She says, if you're me too, you'll get off on it. If you're men too, you'll feel positively gaslit. I've now had to unfollow Byline Radio as they're on the backlash wagon too. Now, I only read that out (laughs) because it kind of amuses me really that anybody could uh, could take that view from this conversation. But it is an undeniable fact that many of Johnny Depp's defenders were women. And that, there is something troubling about that, I think. I mean, I don't think there's anything troubling about that. In fact, when Sean and I were last on your uh, show, we both talked about internalized misogyny, didn't we, Sean? And how it's not surprising that that is the reaction because many survivors also uh, internalize this belief that survivors are supposed to act and behave in a certain way. A lot of the times when people go to their family members who have experienced, in fact, if anybody has watched Unbelievable on Netflix, which is based on a true story of a rape survivor, when the rape survivor in that case goes to her um, foster mother who has experienced rape, she doesn't believe her because she's a rape victim as well. And her reaction was very different to hers. And then therefore she comes to the conclusion that she's lying. Uh, it's not novel, this this idea of, of the support for him. And I've seen that. And yeah, it is disturbing, but it's not surprising. Mm. Liz wants to join our conversation. She's joined us live at Byline Radio. Hello, Liz. Welcome along. What do you want to say? Hi, thank you for letting me speak. Um, I'm a victim of domestic violence and I... I'm not a supporter of Johnny Depp or Amber Heard either way, but I do understand what it's like to be in a toxic relationship. And I do understand that the dynamics between a relationship where you are the victim, but then you're also the empowerer trying to fight back at different times. And it creates that kind of element where one is going to be a victim on one occasion and one's going to be the abuser on the other occasion But because you're trying to, you're battling yourself and it depends on the dynamics of the relationship. I also think that what I will take away from this, as distressing as it was to read about many of the things that were happening in their, in their, in their relationship, I also take away from the fact that actually male abuse, uh, domestic abuse has been finally kind of put to light. I understand exactly what Hira was saying and I take on board what Sean was saying, but we've got a lot of things available to us as women. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have that available and I'm not saying that any woman shouldn't speak up about their abuse, but we've got access to so many things and a lot of men don't have that access and they're equally victims of abuse. The reaction from a woman sometimes when they are being abused is sometimes it's, I'm, not, I'm not condoning it. I'm not saying it's right, but it, it's a spur to a lot of uh, energy and things. And it's also misunderstood. And the psychologies behind all of this is never, ever considered and taken on board. And I think 
what this trial has highlighted is that men are abused too. And I think we need to understand that and really take that on board and provide that level of support to them as well in, in, this, in these circumstances. And I also think that I don't think it's put women back at all. I think women should be empowered by the fact that this has happened. And if you have to speak out and you want to speak out, please do. Whenever you feel that strength and that voice to speak, take it because that voice is there for you. It's not, this is, this is not shutting down anything. It, if you are in a position and you need help and you need support, please go for it. But also don't underestimate the fact that it is a two-way street, especially when you are in a toxic relationship. And I just found... I think the comments are a, a, a bit one-sided um, from here. I don't think it's about me too. I don't think it shut down anything. I think as a woman, I feel a bit um, offended in the way that we, as women as well, we work so hard and try so hard to fight against what we do receive that it will never stop us. So that's my, okay. no, my listen, opinion. I thank you. That's, 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 every right to make the comments that you've made and I thank you for making them but uh, Eric, did you want to come back on that? I completely understand uh, Liz's point and I think you know we are allowed to disagree um, and um, have different takes on things so um, you know I can only talk about for myself I support male survivors of uh, domestic abuse um, and sexual violence whenever they uh, approach me and work with those organizations I've uh, you know, never denied that this is something that happens to them. I just think that in this case, what's really apparent is that is being used as um, as a as a political like point against the fact that women are speaking out and talking about the experiences that they have. So um, I think this is more than just the the case in front of us, and that's where my concerns are. Sean, did you want to reflect on what Liz had said? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's really important. It's always really important to acknowledge that men experience domestic and sexual violence too, and and that we do have properly funded services that support male survivors and male victims. And I don't think anybody would ever try and or should ever try and deny that or to, to sort of shut down those support avenues. Um, it is a re- and I think the dynamics can often be very different because there's a whole like, like level layer around shaming of men in a slightly different way about what does it mean to be a man and if can you be a man and a victim and all of these kind of really toxic masculinities that go along that that make it very difficult for men to speak out. And I think that's one of the things I find very frustrating with cases like this or or kind of the sort of general... Um, there's often this kind of talk about it, but not actually thinking about solutions. And I think we absolutely need to start having really, you know, positive conversations about toxic masculinity, about, you know, vulnerability, about violence against men and about violence against women and make sure that everybody feels empowered and confident to speak because, you know, nobody should have to live with violence in silence. Everybody should have the support that they need. And it shouldn't become this kind of politicized weapon to sort of to kind of against women you know like and I think that's one of the things that's come through sometimes in this case that you know the fact that men are victims too but also women are victims too and we need to have space for both of those issues. What I felt Sean was that really Johnny Depp was fighting for his career here and he's pretty much said as much and a fair few people have been drummed out of Hollywood, not everyone, by the way, but a fair few people have been drummed out of Hollywood for sexually inappropriate behaviour. Some of them have gone to jail, perhaps not enough of them. But in, in Johnny Depp's case, I just find it intriguing that his defeat 
in the law courts, in the libel courts in London two years ago, didn't finish his career. You know, a, a case in which he sought to defend himself against the accusation that he was a wife beater, he lost that. That was not a career-ending verdict. And it was as though he was getting a second chance and, and almost as though he seized this second chance with the defamation trial against Amber Heard, which he's perceived to have won, and the jury awarded him substantial damages. And I just think, how did 2020 not end him? Patriarchy. <laughs> Patriarchy is the answer. I mean, I think, I mean, that's the thing. Well, go on. This no, is, I mean, that, I know you're laughing. This is one of the really, the curious issues. Go on. Yeah, so, you know, he, this idea that his career was being ruined or that his career was over. I mean, at the end of this trial, he came and played a gig at the Royal Albert Hall and was had a standing ovation. I mean, anything... If anything, he seems to be more loved, more popular, the way that social media has responded to this case. He seems to be, you know, the biggest sort of star in the world. And I, I think it's, we do have this real issue that um, when men are accused of sexually inappropriate behaviour or of domestic abuse or of, I mean, all, all sorts of, of issues, they seem to be able to recover in a way that women's careers end when they, in Hollywood when they turn 40. That seems to be enough. And if you compare these allegations or allegations of like sexually inappropriate behaviour or domestic abuse against various male stars, and you compare that to when Winona Ryder shoplifted, I mean, that really did end her career for a very long time. You know, it took her a long time to kind of come back from that. And th that kind of transgression was seen as sort of so horrifying and so awful. And yet there are, there are many, many famous Hollywood movie stars and musicians um, and actors and TV personalities and politicians that have done way worse things than steal a handbag. And yet it hasn't touched their careers in any meaningful way. And, and I think that is because we live in a, a society that gives men the benefit of the doubt because we live in a patriarchal society and that we, it gives men a kind of redemption arc in a way that isn't allowed for women. And it goes back to that idea that I said before about this double standard of the perfect victim. You know, Amber Heard's behaviour was seen to discredit her. Depp's behaviour was seen to bring him more sympathy. Yeah. Did somebody mention Mel Gibson there? <laughs> Not sexual. He was on the tip of my tongue, but yes, I didn't mention him. <laughs> well, I, I, I'll, I'll name it. You know, outrageous yeah. anti-Semitism has not cost Mel Gibson his career, despite the fact that many anti-Semites believe that Hollywood is all a big Jewish plot. Anyway, uh, let's, let's bring uh, Asher into the conversation. Hello, Asher. Hi. Uh, I just wanted to add quickly that I, what I found most jarring about this trial was the fact that he is suing for the fact that he lost a couple of roles. And from listening to Amber Heard, she's fighting for her right to live. And the kinds of things that was done within the context of their relationship, it just seems really contradictory. The fact that, I don't know, like maybe after this trial, is he going to sue her again for daring to write another article about her own life? It just seems literally to me it seems like we've gone back a couple of centuries in fairness she her, his legal team went after her with real aggression and she was awarded 
$2 million in in her counterclaim against them. So it, it wasn't absolutely black and white, but clearly the $15 million, which was the notional award by the jury versus the $2 million awarded to her, does represent a very big victory for, for Johnny Depp. There's no two ways about that. Do you think, Asher, that it will prevent women or discourage women from coming forward? I mean, clearly most women don't have the public profile of Amber Heard and their cases won't be given the same kind of public spotlight. Absolutely. I think this is just like, I absolutely think that it would prevent women from coming forward. Just the kind of mockery and the tone of this discussion, it's been so cruel to Amber Heard. I mean, it's it's shocking to me that people are even laughing about a trial of this consequence. I, I'm quite disappointed at the verdict, really, as you can tell. Yeah, absolutely. Can I just jump in on that as well? Because yeah. I think it's a really important point about the mockery. And I don't know, um, I wrote a piece um, this week about the kind of the fandom and the sort of social media circus. I think when you look at... I've. I can't seem to escape it. I go on Facebook and there'll be a little TikTok video about this case with kind of cry laughing emojis as Amber Heard is saying something. And and it's like, whatever side you take, whoever, whatever the outcome was, whatever you believe about this case, these are two people who've gone through something really awful and we shouldn't be treating it as a spectator sport and kind of being like, oh, I'm on team Heard, I'm on team Depp. I'm going to laugh at what she says. I'm going to laugh at what he says. You know, I think what's been really interesting about the social media around this case is, has how, is how it has turned this into some like a sporting match that we've all picked a team on and that we're never going to be like moved from our positions and that we're kind of munching our popcorn and watching them go at each other when really this is a case about domestic abuse and we should never have got into a position where domestic abuse was turned into a spectator sport. I think I wrote like the peanut munching crowd in my in my piece because that's how it feels as if we're all watching a movie or we're watching we're, we're there kind of making jokes and and taking the mickey out of what they're saying and and sort of using it as a badge of pride as opposed to having empathy and really you know important empathy with with a toxic with people who've gone through something really toxic and with victims and survivors of gender-based violence I agree completely. Thanks for articulating the unease that I felt. I think I'll just mute these terms for a while because I'm quite active on Twitter and I can't seem to escape it. Um, but thanks for that. No, thank you for joining in, Asha. Hera, I wanted to just ask you uh, before we close, as someone who deals on a daily basis with victims of gender-based violence, do you fear that this really will dissuade women from coming forward who perhaps don't have the same profile as Amber Heard? 100%. Um, 100% because it happens every single time there's a, a defamation or libel case in the media uh, around sexual assault and domestic abuse. Every single time. It happens. Um, in fact, there's, um, there's a group of researchers that are looking at the US and the, the claims filed by women and how many of them are retracting their statements right now. And I think we're going to be seeing more and more coverage of this. It is uh, very scary to uh, see this happen. We saw this in the case of Prince Andrew as well. Um, and courts are really hard to get through anyway. And then to feel like you, your case is going to be up in front of people and, you know, your your character and your history is going to be shredded and then you might actually become homeless and not have money to pay for, um, might lose your job and like create all this extra stress for yourself and the fa your family um, is, 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 is the high cost. This is exactly why 
um, people like me say that um, there are very few reasons for someone to lie about something like this because the costs of coming out and sharing your story are so, so high. Um, so, yeah, I think it's definitely going to have a chilling effect on the uh, amount of survivors that come forward and, and speak, speak their truth. I also think as well, it's set a really interesting and quite worrying precedent. Because if you think to the article in question, Heard never actually named Johnny Depp. And it feels like this is set a precedent that is, as long as you say that you're a victim of domestic abuse or a victim of sexual assault, if you say that, then the person who did that has got a reason for pursuing you now. It doesn't matter if you don't name him. If he believes that he can be identified, then this sets a precedent that he can sue you for defamation. And I think the impact that that has on a victim who has already been so silenced by the abuse, abuse is a silencing thing. It cuts you off from your friends. It cuts you off from your family. It stops you being able to speak about your own experiences, you know, because you're constantly being told by your abuser that you won't be believed. And then when you finally have the voice to say, this happened to me, and suddenly be faced with this idea that you could be sued for saying this happened to me it's going to have a really chilling effect and I don't think people have really thought through the impact that this will have on women's access to justice and that really really scares me. Uh, Rafi, hello Rafi, welcome to Byline Radio. Uh, Hello, pleasure, just such amazing words just hearing you guys um, resonate with a lot of things in which I've been thinking and feeling um, especially when you touch a on toxic masculinity, the fact that there's so many elements of narcissism that was shown within this case, and the different forms of toxic masculinity, like um, the fact that, you know, so much of the evidence of his own behavior came from him, himself, and yet that doesn't seem to be under the spotlight. The scrutiny which is shown to her doesn't seem to ever be put onto him. And so I'm just shocked by the fact that how this is going to impact so many other women and the gravity of something setting a precedence at this stage. I wonder, like, you mentioned the court case in the UK. Um, I just wonder, like, was that because of the Sun newspaper that they were suing him based on? Or was it because of it it actually proved that he had um, committed those acts? Yeah, well, he he took the Sun to court because they called him a wife-beater and the judge heard that libel trial and said that the son had sufficient grounds to call him a wife-beater, and having heard evidence from Amber Heard, in which he outlined 14 individual instances, he said, in essence, he was persuaded to believe 12 of those 14 allegations. So it was a pretty damning verdict against Johnny Depp. And it went through three judges, if I recall, um, in total, where he tried to appeal and each each appeal failed. So I think it, it just goes to the the fact that that seems to just be lost on all of individuals. And, you know, in terms of like identifying the types of behavior he's done, I just wish there was more ways to kind of like highlight that, break them apart, because a lot of individuals are soaking up the spectacle, um, soaking up these topics without ever having any comprehension of the multifaceted layers of something like domestic abuse. And I think like, if you have no comprehension of this type of information and you're just soaking it up, you know, the unconscious bias we soak up, we're not educated on these particular topics. Who are the people in which we should be going to, to kind of like being um, informed without a bias i just wondered if any of you could share some individuals in which you tend to go for who resonate with you and who tend to be someone in which really helps map things out well Hera, for one i mean her work in the work of chain is so important 
and it's really really um, positive work that they do and as she says she works with survivors and victims of gender-based violence and you know has got such an incredible insight into the experiences of, of women and men who go through this um and also, you know, there's an awful lot of um, really great domestic abuse charities in the UK, such as Refuge and Women's Aid and the sort of smaller organisations as well. Um, and now I'm doing that thing that I always do when I completely draw a blank, despite spending my entire life on Twitter and reading about these issues. <laughs> but um, here, maybe you've got some ideas of, of who's good to talk to. Yeah, absolutely. There's, you know, we're very lucky um, to have a sort of a thriving a sector of feminists, uh, even though it's really struggling under funding cuts, um, both in the UK and, and the rest of the world. I think that, you know, Sean named some of the big ones. I definitely say, like, you know, Sister Space does really great work in the UK. Um, and then you oftentimes what I find is that, you know, if you're just looking at social media, you're going to find all the hot takes and that you might find some really great commentary in there as well. But really to get the really in-depth stuff, like there was, there's an excellent article right now that Monica Lewinsky wrote about this, which you should definitely read. Um, there's also a really good, uh, a few good, good op-eds on, um, on uh, Guardian, which I really recommend, and also on Newsweek and, and, and uh, New York Times. So I think some of the bigger publications, but also some of the feminist publication, if uh, one of my favorite publications in the world is Feminism in India, it's an Indian <laughs> publication, but they cover like lots of different global stories as well. Um, so I, I would yeah look at like very specific sort of uh, inclusive publications too. And uh, the other thing I would say is that uh, when you're looking at analyzing things, like, like I said before, just be very mindful of what you see on social media, because it's, so easy to create a snap judgment and when we're dealing with complex issues we just can't do that you know um you know many people in the gender-based violence space do not believe in mutual abuse i sort of personally do believe in it but i know that most people don't but i believe that even in a personal capacity i look at like your power dynamics in that case so in this case we have some really clear power dynamics you know he said uh johnny depp said that he was you know amber heard was begging for total global humiliation and she's gonna get it and that's exactly what he delivered so i think that there are things like that that we we, we want to look at so when, even when people are looking at evidence um, what's interesting about this is confirmation bias. So there is clear evidence from his side as well, not just her side. So like, but it's people are ignoring all the damning ev evidence against him and accepting everything that's against her. So that's when you start drawing, you know, critical thinking skills are things that we should really teach our children because I think that's where you can start drawing these comparisons and understanding power dynamics and gender analysis. So um, just be very mindful of like hot takes is what I'm going to say. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't want to end on a glib note, Hera, but I think it is worth saying that if anybody does listen to this, whether they're listening live on Byline Radio or via the Byline Times podcast, and they are experiencing domestic violence, I don't underestimate for one moment how easy it is to seek a way out of that. I know it can be extremely difficult, but I think all of us here would encourage you, if you can, if you are a experiencing domestic violence right now to find a way to reach out and and seek the help that you need it is it may be difficult especially in light of everything we've heard on this discussion but it is important that you do find a way out and and there are places out there that can help you yeah so the national domestic abuse helpline is free and it's 24 hours and its number is 0808 
2000247. So if you are listening and, and you need to talk to someone or you're in need of help, that's the um, phone number for the National Domestic Abuse Helpline. But also you don't have to call that helpline if you don't want to. There are lots of other resources uh, where you don't have to talk to a human and you can just read, uh, including all of Chan's resources, all available online. You can make up your mind about what the best decision for you is um, and then make that step Um Again, there's no pressure for you to go to the police if you don't want to. If your life is a danger, please do. But there's so many different ways of getting support. And just the last thing I would really like to say because of what we're discussing is, is protect your mental health and protect your inner peace. You do not need to listen to every single person who has something to say about this case. You don't have to take it to your heart, even though it's really hard right now. And I know how bad it makes you feel when you read, like when you listen to jokes and you see hear insensitive statements, especially coming from your friends and people you admire. So if there are ways for you to phase that out and to put it in a box and throw it away, then please do that. Hera, thank you for your time. If you want to check out Hera's organization, they're called Chain, C-H-A-Y-N, an international organization working against gender-based violence. Thanks also uh, to Sean Norris, the chief social affairs reporter for Byline Times. And if you do want to support free and fearless independent journalism, please think about taking out a subscription to the Byline Times. It's our brilliant monthly newspaper, but here's the thing. Your subscription also supports Byline TV. It supports the Byline Times podcast, Byline Radio, and our news-breaking website, bylinetimes.com. And that's where you'll find details of how to subscribe to the Byline Times at bylinetimes.com. Thank you, Sean. Thank you, Hera. Stay tuned to at Byline Radio, and we'll let you know when we've got more of these Twitter spaces going live. Thanks very much, everyone. Cheers now. Bye-bye. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. Bye-bye.